Today's episode of The Corner 3 is brought to you by Belvedere, part of a 600-year Polish vodka-making tradition. Belvedere vodka is all-natural and made with 100% non-GMO Polska rye and pristine water. Belvedere has championed Polska rye vodka and superior natural ingredients since its inception and continues their mission with its new Belvedere Single Estate Rye Series. These award-winning vodkas, Smogori Forest and Lake Bartizek, are two distinct tasting vodkas born from unique terroir and expert craftsmanship. Much like the expert craftsmanship by Kawhi Leonard on the defensive end of the floor in tonight's game against Yata Santa Taste the difference and enjoy Belvedere's new single estate rye vodkas on the rocks or in a delicious cocktail today. Belvedere is a quality choice. Drinking responsibly is too. Today's Corner 3 is also brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. There's no such thing as a good excuse for not buckling up. If you're using excuses like, I'm not going very far, you're putting yourself at risk of injury or even death. If that's not enough to convince you, consider this. Not buckling up could cost you lots of money. Cops are writing tickets, so why take the risk? Do the smart thing and buckle up every trip, day or night. Click it or tick it. And now, the Corner 3. Welcome to the Ringer NBA Show. This is the Corner 3. My name is Kevin O'Connor, and joining me here at Ringer Studios in Los Angeles, it's Ringer Associate Editor Danny Chow. Oh my god, I can't believe you're back. This is a momentous moment. Happy to have you back, seriously. I'm so happy to be back. Unfortunately, we are a man down today. No Jonathan Sharks. He is traveling tonight. But, you know, the Raptors certainly were not shorthanded tonight in their 120-102 to 102 victory in Game 4 over the Bucks without Kawhi in the game, Danny. Their role players scored 13 straight points in the first quarter and then late in the third quarter into the fourth quarter with no Kawhi, no Siakam, no Kyle Lowry. They built a 20-point lead to essentially clinch the game over the Bucks and tie the series 2-2. Two to two. Right, yeah, this was an incredible performance. I mean, that 13-0 run that we were talking about just a second ago, it started with about one minute left in the first quarter, went on for another two minutes in the second. Once that happened, I was just like, oh, these Raptors are, are locked in. There's no way that they're going to lose if Kawhi is basically being out there like a decoy, whereas like all of their bench players just suddenly caught fire. It was a classic Raptors win. Like when you think about how the Raptors generally won games over the past few years, it was always like a bench mob approach to kind of getting the ball around, whipping around the floor and entrusting, you know, a lot of faith in the team. Whereas this year, it's a lot been more about Kawhi. So it's it was a very, very nice retro win for a team that really needed it. You know, following the Kawhi trade, of course, last summer, following the Marcus Soul trade during the season, that loaded bench did become depleted, and Absolutely. we saw that throughout the entire postseason, for the most part, where this was a team that lacked options on the bench. But it was those same guys, yeah. Fred Van Vliet, who had a big game scoring 13 points off the bench on 5-for-6 shooting, hit that big 4-point shot. Norman Powell, as well, had a just a tremendous game, back-to-back games. He's only 6-for-18 tonight. But I think overall, the... The difference with Powell in this series, for Nick Nurse to make that change, is Powell's not just a guy who's hitting threes off the catch for you. Right. He's also somebody who can create off the dribble, and I think that has added a new dimension to their offense that they lacked before that has helped that bench unit a lot. Yeah, and I mean, the, the bench disparity in points is really what tells the story. The Raptors had 48 points on the game from their bench. Bucks had 28. The game was an 18-point game. You know, it, it that 20-point differential is exactly what what did it for the Raptors. And I mean, look, if you told me before the series that Lowry, Van Vliet, 
and Powell were going to be on the same court together in major minutes for a decisive game, I'd be like, oh, crap, the Raptors are in trouble. But no, they they really pulled it out with some outstanding effort on both ends of the floor. Well, and you mentioned up top, they really needed this with Kawhi Hurt. During game three, he was reaching down at his knee or quad area. that right, After a huge dunk. Yep, that right quadricep, which was something that's been a, a, a pain for him since 2016. Not just last season where he missed all but nine games, but since 2016, that's been an issue for him. And it seems to be flaring up. And yet, they get, they're getting the offensive contributions that they needed from their other players in the roster, which they weren't getting before. But Kawhi himself still has had a tremendous back-to-back games like defending Giannis Antetokounmpo Absolutely. on the ball. So Nick Nurse making that change, putting Kawhi on Giannis, which they didn't do all season during matchups. They didn't do in the first two games, but starting in game three, Kawhi has been the primary defender on, on Giannis. And Giannis looks really hesitant against him, but it's not just Kawhi, though. No. The Raptors are helping off of guys like Eric Bledsoe, giving him space to shoot, which is a theme we've seen throughout the playoffs with average or worse shooters just getting ignored off the ball. Alfred Aminu, Pascal Siakam, right. Eric Bledsoe in this series, where Toronto just does not respect him. They don't care about his shot, and they're overloading their defense against Giannis and forcing everybody else to beat them, and Milwaukee has not come through two games in a row now. I think part of it is the Raptors are kind of trying to get the ball out of Giannis's hands much earlier than he wants it to get out. So they are showing that double. They're showing the kind of help defender. But there's always going to be that that rotating man who's ready to, to help on the shooter. Uh, whenever they actually do kind of force the ball out of Giannis's hand, it was it was a full team effort to to guard Giannis today, and it was the results kind of speak for themselves. For sure, Giannis tonight had twenty five points, nine of seventeen, six of ten from the line, ten rebounds, five assists. He had a good game. Like it's yeah, not, it's and, not like he stunk by any means. And that that beginning of the the game where basically every point the Bucks scored was like on a Giannis Euro step. There, there's just nothing you can do about that. Like mm-hmm. he's always going to be trying to score around guys just because his coordination his his power that ability to kind of do that double juke euro step that not so many people can do on earth that that's going that's going <laughs> to be you know of, yeah of yeah that's earth. going to be kind of the difference maker always when it comes to like a one-on-one possession the only thing you could really do is try to force him to score over you that's where guys like charles barkley are talking about oh he needs a floater you know like if he can't get that layup if he can't get that dunk that's where you're going to be able to kind of affect his offensive performance. A floater would be nice, but I think having teammates who could hit open threes would be nice as well. <laughs> yeah. and, and tonight, Nikola Mirotic did not come through 2 of 8 from 3. Eric Bledsoe was just downright horrific all, all game. 0 for 2 from 3, 2 for 7 from the floor. At the end of game 3, you could see the fear in his eyes when he was at the free throw line and when he missed the 2 in a row at the end of game 3. And his struggles continued again tonight. And Malcolm Brogdon, who's been pretty good since returning 2 of 11 tonight for only 4 points. Milwaukee, like it's classic it goes, Ringer curse, it, you know. It, it, Ringer curse. Charks wrote a great piece on Brogdon today. It goes without saying that if your third, fourth, and fifth best players aren't performing well, you're probably going to lose the game. But they got what they needed from Giannis. Chris mm-hmm. Middleton had a really strong performance. He looked like the max player that Absolutely. people would expect him to be this summer. But tonight, Eric Bledsoe, he did nothing to squash any of the concerns people had about him and in, heading into the postseason on the offensive end of the floor. He's never been a reliable player over the course of his career, and he has certainly not been reliable on the offensive end in the postseason. I can't help but think for the Bucks, they signed him in that four-year, $70 million deal with the fourth-year non-guaranteed on March 1st. And Eric Bledsoe had a tremendous season defensively. I had him on my all-NBA defensive team, 
And I had and there were no, there were real like discussions about like him being the second best player on the team during yeah. the regular season. Exactly, like second most important player like mm-hmm. over Chris Middleton. There was yeah. a legitimate argument about that. Me and Sharks were just completely yeah. offended, but yes. yeah, there there but was an argument. It was legitimate, and, yeah. and in the postseason, I think it's been quite clear that Chris Middleton is the second most important player on the Bucks, and and Eric Bledsoe <laughs> could have been a mistake. Yeah, he was asked tonight. He was not a good player. And mm-hmm. and I think for Giannis, like, he needs that secondary ball handling presence that can play make in the half court, that can hit shots in the half court. And right now it's looking to me like George Hill is the right. better option than Eric Bledsoe, who just does not look like a player who deserves to be on the court because of his offensive limitations. Look, I'm, I'm never going to say no to more George Hill to minutes. Make, to make this clear, George Hill is your favorite player, correct? Well, he's top five, definitely. Top five. Are we talking all time or like past couple of years? Last, I, I would say, I would say of the past decade, he is one of my five. five <laughs> How does this players. happen? You know what? I I get attracted to strange things in general. <laughs> okay, should we get into this or save it for another day? Yo, whenever we want to, whenever we want to launch an insect podcast, like. <laughs> just let me know, Bill. You know? Okay, that'll be next. But George Hill, yeah, um, once a very good two way player who faded away for a year and a half, two years, and now he's back. And I think for Milwaukee in the series, granted, he did not have a great game himself. He's at least somebody that the defense has to respect when he's spotting up from three. Bledsoe is a sub-30% catch-and-shoot three-point shooter. There's no reason for Toronto to defend Bledsoe. They can help on Giannis when he has the ball in his hands. Uh, George Hill is somebody who can at least be a little bit more reliable um, spotting up. Is that a change that you think Milwaukee does need to make in this series? Yeah, absolutely. And I think... Before this game, Mike Budenholzer had talked about how there may not be a minutes restriction mm-hmm. on Brogdon, but he does kind of like what Brogdon adds as a sixth mm-hmm. man. But I think going forward, if Eric Bledsoe just isn't going to be showing up in this series, you have to have him on a short leash and have Brogdon Hill out there at the same time because they offer you exactly what a team with Giannis, a team that's trying to build around Giannis, needs. You know, a reliable three-point shooting, guys who are comfortable making plays for others, but who aren't going to be making a lot of mistakes. I think that's the biggest thing. You can't have turnovers when you're on this Bucks team. And tonight, um, for Milwaukee, I think in regards to their personnel, we talked about this a little bit before recording the podcast, me, you, and, and Isaac Lee, who's producing tonight's show. Did we overrate Milwaukee's supporting cast around Giannis, or is this more just the variance of that core when Nikola Mirotic has always been somebody who's a streaky shooter? He has right. stretches where he hits at 40% plus from three, and then stretches where he can't find the net at all. Eric Bledsoe, a historically streaky offensive player, again tonight, he struggled. The, a lot of their guys are up and down. Brooke Lopez, somebody who was only recently has been become a high-volume three-point shooter, was their core a little bit overrated, or is this just the nature of it, where it's going to be up and down, and we've seen the downs these past two games? I mean, the, the thing is, when you look at some of the past games, I mean, the Bucks supporting cast has been there, and there was a game where Eric Bledsoe, Giannis, and Middleton were all garbage last game. The reason why they were able to take it to that double overtime was because of the contributions of Brogdon, because of the contributions of George Hill. And so I feel like they do have the requisite depth, but this is what you're bargaining with when you have a team full of three-point shooters. It's always going to be high variance. And I think for Toronto, 
they've figured things out defensively where they're just going to dare those high-variance players to beat them, mm-hmm. and they're going to live with the results. I, I think for Toronto, there's concern moving forward with Kawhi looking like he's not at full strength. Defensively, he's been great. He's been amazing. Uh, yeah. But offensively, he had that big dunk at the start of the third quarter where he posterized Giannis and then landed and was grabbing at his right leg and limbered up the floor. He was very it's he concerning. Was, yeah, he was moving very gingerly throughout the entire game. I, I had mentioned this while we were watching it, but it felt like a very... Duncan-esque performance from Kawhi. An old Duncan, though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Old Duncan basically played on one leg for the final, like, four or five years of his career. But he was still an effective defender. He was still the kind of the fulcrum of their defense. And with Kawhi in this game, the funny thing was, you watch him in the first half and you watch him in the second half, he actually played more minutes than most of the rotation guys on the team. And yet, he was kind of invisible on offense for a lot of stretches. Like, he was playing a lot off-ball, made some very decisive cuts. It was almost like retro Kawhi was coming out in (laughs) stretches. I kind of appreciated that. Kawhi, obviously, is a superstar of the Raptors, but Kyle Lowry, this series, overall has been great. Even in Game 1, which they lost, Lowry had 30 points. Tonight, he had 25 points on 6 of 11 shooting, 6 assists, 5 rebounds, only 1 turnover. Lowry, a guy who historically... People have considered a choker in the playoffs. Historically, people have looked at him as a regular season player who has failed in the postseason. But he seems to be changing the tune in this series. We talk overall. about this. We talk about this a lot. And and again, this is something that we brought up uh, during the game. But I've brought this up too, and I've been critical of his first game of the playoffs. His first game of the playoffs mm-hmm. is always garbage. It's oh, frankly for, oh, for seven against the Magic yeah. and back on April thirteenth, which feels like a century ago. Right. And and so, but the thing is. It has been such a consistent part of his narrative that it's become like this self-fulfilling prophecy. And from there— And he also did kind of struggle shooting the ball against Philadelphia and against Orlando the whole series. But even in the Sixers series, he kind of made up for it with a lot of effort. That game seven he had was incredible. Him and Fred VanVleet kind of changed the tone of that series with their effort. And we will always kind of judge Lowry off of that first game, and that will always kind of color how we see him. But he's been amazing in the series. And he's really put forth a lot of effort on both ends of the floor, doing Lowry things. His hand's probably still not healed, but he's out there gutting it out. And and at this point, you know, that's all you can really ask for. I think overall, Lowry sort of symbolizes the change that's happened on this entire Toronto Raptors roster, where at the beginning of the series, we were talking about how Marcus Hull needs to take those open threes. He has to be more aggressive on the offensive floor. We're talking about how Siakam has not been quite the same player in the postseason. And Siakam tonight did not put up big numbers, but he had six assists. Mm -hmm. He put the ball in his hands on the ball more often because what Milwaukee was doing was they were helping off of Siakam in order to clog the paint against Kawhi Leonard. So what they did with Siakam, have him cutting more off ball, more on the ball opportunities. And then with Marcus Hull, he's just been more aggressive, taking more three-pointers and with Kawhi being a little bit limited offensively, uh, he still looks like Kawhi Leonard, despite the fact he's grabbing at his right side a lot, which is alarming for moving forward for them if they do advance to the, against the Warriors. But they're getting the contributions that they need from the rest of their team, which I, I think is the reason why this has been tied up. And the reason why moving forward in the series, I picked Milwaukee in six before the series. And even entering tonight, I was like, Milwaukee, maybe good chance they win the next two. Yeah. But I think the fact is is that we've seen a little bit of a sustained stretch of Toronto 
playing differently, a more aggressive style, using their players differently. And these are the type of adjustments that need to be made in the postseason. So, Danny, I do wonder, though, with those adjustments that have been made, assuming those continue for Toronto, what is something that you think Milwaukee should do moving forward in order to counter that if you're a coach Mike Budenholzer? I mean, really, just hit your threes. Sometimes you it know, is as simple it, as it, make it, or miss league, right? Like, when you play a game with Giannis, and he makes the game so much easier for everyone else, you really just need to hit those threes. And they haven't been able to hit those open threes from the corners, from the wings, all series. I'm pretty sure they've... Have they lost the three-point percentage battle every game? It in, feels in, that in way. At least three of the games. Yeah. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but... Right, and I really do feel like it's a lot of that. And look... Overall, though, they're shooting less than 30% in the series terrible. from three. Yeah, yeah, and, and look, you can't expect the Raptors to score 48 bench points every game going forward. So, like, this might be a blip in the radar. It might be because of the tremendous home court advantage. There were fans just lined outside of Jurassic Park and beyond. Oh, yeah. Can you describe it, that scene? Like, you showed us a photo of it. That scene was unreal. Yeah, and it was crazy. It was basically, like, four different sections behind the arena blocked off. It was almost like Times Square, like, on New Year's Day. Not, <laughs> like, maybe, like, a 13th of that level, but still, you know, like it was a lot of fans outside cheering and like the city is really rallying around this team. And they have their new campaign to keep Kawhi. <laughs> Kristen Ledlow mentioned on the broadcast yeah. site. Kawhi and Dine. <laughs> yeah, this is a cute little sticker, you know, basically uh, what? Every, every, Eats free. yeah, every yeah. <laughs> restaurant that has, that features this sticker, that features this campaign, this logo, Kawhi gets to eat for free. How are you enjoying Raptors fandom, Danny? Watching the game with you tonight is my first time watching the Raptors with you. It feels like I feel the intensity. I feel the nerves from you. You quickly adapted this team. Definitely nervy. I was shouting a lot. Mm. A lot of expletives. (laughs) Threw a lot of those out. No, Raptors fandom has been great. And this game was like, I could not have asked for a better game to pot about. So as a a Raptors (laughs) fan moving forward in the series, as somebody who picked the Bucks, like I said, in six, uh, I feel a little bit iffier on that now. I'm not sure if there's a little recency bias coming in here. I mean, the home team won each game. Right. And Milwaukee has home court advantage. However, like I said earlier, I do think Toronto's changes that they made are encouraging for this team. What is your sense of the rest of the series considering the adjustments that Nick Nurse has made? I think Norm Powell has done his service. <laughs> I, I just can't really see him continuing this like on the road, hitting these no hesitation threes from all over the court, off the dribble, off the catch. He had a poor shooting game and, and it kind of very quickly tailed off after he hit some huge momentum shifting threes. But you know what? I do have to shout out Charks here because he's not with us, but he is our brother. Uh, he's spiritually <laughs> here. here. Yes. Before this game, he was just like, here's what the Raptors need to do. They need to bench Marcus All and start Norman Powell, get Norman Powell as many minutes as. as they can get him on Malcolm Brogdon because his whole thing was Malcolm Brogdon has been doing a very good job on Kawhi Leonard. You kind of want Norman Powell, who is a bit more bouncy, a lot more bouncy, um, <laughs> more of a athletic, dynamic, explosive type of guy instead of a methodical one-on-one player on him. And so I want to believe in this bench effort, but I don't know how much it's going to kind of sustain itself on the road. 
I think with Toronto, one of the things to watch for moving forward in the series is how they're just moving the ball. Yeah. Uh, tonight, they had 32 assists on 41 makes. You know, Siakam had the six assists. Gasol had seven. Lowry had six. Powell had three. Van Vliet had six. Ibaka had two. Leonard only had one. Um, Danny Green only had one as well. But the team overall was just whipping the ball around the court. And I thought they did a really good job of getting paint touches, then kicking the ball back out in order to create defensive rotations and, and generate open shots that way. I think the ball movement will be key moving forward in the series for Toronto. I would it, love that. It, they play differently. Kawhi, a lot more isolations at the top of the key. I don't think you can win the series that way just by isolating Kawhi over and over and over and over. That's not going to work. You're not going to win it that way. You're going to need that at the end of close games, as we saw in Game 7 against yeah. the Sixers, which, which remains mind-blowing that that shot actually went in. But over the course of the game, they're going to have to continue moving the ball with or without Kawhi on the floor. And for Milwaukee, their defense is just going to have to be really, really sound. I think they're going to have to continue helping off the non-shooters. And even with Marcus Gasol, he's still somebody you have to continue your drop, more conservative defense. I don't think you should stray away from that right. if you're Milwaukee. I think that's the formula that worked for them all season. I think it's the formula that they correctly adjusted against the Celtics. But in this Toronto series, I, I tend to think sticking with that would be the best move. They just have to be really sound in their own rotations as well. Yeah, I mean, look, two of the best Raptors players this regular season have not shown up yet. That's Pascal Siakam. That's Danny Green. Danny Green was in foul trouble this game. Couldn't really get into a rhythm. Made some really nice defensive plays. But he hasn't had a standout uh, offensive performance yet. I'm still kind of waiting on that. That would kind of show me, oh, okay, yeah. This ball movement that you're talking about being a key to the game, if they can kind of unlock Danny Green and unlock his ability to serve as that J.J. Redick-type guy who could pull up and transition Mm -hmm. off the catch— that would add an element that they haven't yet had in this series. All right, Danny, before we go on, let's hear from today's sponsor, Turo. Turo is a peer-to-peer car-sharing marketplace where you can book any car you want, wherever you want it, from a community of local hosts. Turo is available in 5,500 cities across the U.S., Canada, the United Kingdom, and Germany, with over 9 million users worldwide. Choose the car that's best for you, often at a lower cost than traditional car rental agencies, and customize your experience for whatever your adventure demands. Turo has 850-plus unique makes and models available, including Tesla, Mercedes-Benz, Ferrari, Toyota, and more. Whether it's a truck to help on moving day, a swishy sports car for a luxurious weekend away, or a vintage car for a picture-perfect road trip, Turo lets you find the perfect vehicle for your next adventure. Turo has more than 350,000 vehicles listed globally, and many hosts offer to deliver the car right to you. Insurance options are available on every trip. Skip the rental counter with Turo. Download the Turo app, that's T-U-R-O, on the App Store or Google Play, or visit Turo.com. Get $25 off your first trip when you sign up for Turo and use promo code RINGER25 at checkout. Terms apply. Now back to the corner three. One last thought I have about Toronto. We touched on Kawhi earlier, the great defense that he played. With the injury that he's had, the entire team has sort of followed his lead with the effort that he's putting in there. He had four steals. He just played hard, really hard on the defensive end of the floor. And and this entire team as a whole, Serge Ibaka, Norman Powell, Van Vliet, Lowry, up and down the board for this team, everybody's playing hard. And that's something, again, that you need to carry over. It goes without saying, you got to play hard. But with your leader in Kawhi Leonard, who is clearly hurt, Mm -hmm. for him to continue playing with the intensity level that he has, has set a really strong tone for the entire roster. Yeah, and with the narrative of him, you know, he's this hired assassin. Oh, yeah. The one you're here, he has no real reason to 
truly commit to this team. There was a quote at the end of game three, actually, where he was apparently talking to Pascal Siakam and he's just like, man, I played nearly an hour. And then Pascal's like, oh, dude, I'm sorry. I'm g- I'll, I'll, hit those, I'll hit those two free throws next time. Yeah. And it was or, like... Or, just, or that pull-up three in the regulation. Yeah, it was just like, you know, just him having this rapport with the team, him leading by example, it says a lot. It says yeah. a lot about this team. You know, and that's going to be the fascinating thing moving forward, regardless of, of what happens in this series. With Kawhi, I've been thinking a lot recently. It's like if you have a job and you just want to transfer to, mm-hmm. to the Los Angeles office and they send you to Toronto... The odds are, you know, in a year when you're able to go to that Los Angeles office, you're probably going to leave Toronto unless you just totally fall in love with the city. And with Kawhi, he had that signature moment. Unless you're me. Unless you're you, <laughs> yes. Unless you're Danny Chow, yes, yes, who, who could leave his native Los Angeles for Toronto. Um, <laughs> but with Kawhi, it's like all indications are that he's still strongly going to consider going to Los Angeles. But the one interesting wrinkle is in today's news. Isaac's over here just like dancing. Yeah, man. Like, <laughs> yeah that resident Clippers fan Isaac Lee, arms up in the air. He's uh, a big smile on his face. Disgusting. With Kawhi, I mean, that's going to be the conversation no matter what happens moving forward. Yeah. But in today's news, Mark Stein of the New York Times reported that, quote, very smart and plugged in people, end quote, <laughs> told him that the Clippers emerged as a, quote, equally dangerous threat as the New York Knicks to sign Kevin Durant. The Clippers, of course, are the team that also could be going after Kawhi Leonard. And there's been no secret the entire season. You know, people in that front office have not shied away from it. It's been reported by everybody that the Clippers would like to try to add Kawhi Leonard and Kevin Durant. They don't just want one star. They don't just want two stars. They want as many, like, game-changing talents Mm -hmm. as they can get. And they are probably the most in position to do that out of any team in the league. They can create the max slots. They have the assets to at least get in the conversation for an Anthony Davis trade if he becomes available. Katie's manager, Rich Kleiman, and and his roommate, Rich Kleiman, said today uh, in an interview that he's, quote, 100% undecided on his future. I'm really not totally sure what to make to this because everything I've heard from my sources is that Katie to the Knicks is still the highly likely scenario. But with that said, it's like Stein said in his report today, that over the past month or so, that certainly has quieted down a little bit where there's a little bit more doubt where maybe he would consider the Clippers. Maybe he will consider the Nets. But I do wonder, though, is this just a repeat of what we saw last year with LeBron? Where it's like, oh, he's going to consider the Sixers. He's going to take a meeting. When really it's just an anti-tampering PR-style move when he's going to the Knicks anyway. Just like LeBron is going to the Lakers. I don't know. I kind of believe it just because of what we've seen from KD's kind of personality over the years and and how Mm -hmm. he is openly willing to express his doubts and his concerns and do some weird (laughs) stuff on the internet like he is a millennial he's one of us he is do i believe that he (laughs) doesn't of us yeah do i believe that he doesn't really know what he's doing sure because i don't really know what i'm doing you know so like there's a certain like relatability to that and i'm just like okay yeah no Mm -hmm. if you're saying you don't know where you want to go i buy it that's when I first fell in love with KD as a player was in the early 2010s when he used to just tweet about relationship stuff and bath, bath water. water. Yes. <laughs> it's like, wow, me and KD, Kevin and Kevin, we, we, we have a lot in common. <laughs> Good stuff, um, Kevin. <laughs> things have changed over the years. KD's personality has changed. Mine has not for better or for worse. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> but for KD, he proved to be unpredictable. Right. With his last move, where 
going to a 73 win team that was on the verge of going to the finals that beat his team in a three to one comeback. Not something people could have predicted, especially when there were other appealing options. Staying in Oklahoma City, going to Boston, which would have been a move that nobody really frowned at for KD to do that. But he went to Golden State. And I think with all indications being the Knicks, it would not surprise me if one bit, knowing KD and Mm -hmm. understanding as much as we do about him, we're not buddy buddies with him, but understanding what we do about KD, it would not surprise me if there's a part of him that's like, I'm not going to go to the Knicks because everybody thinks I'm going to go there. I'm going to either stay or just go somewhere else. So it's for like the Clippers, if Steve Ballmer sits down with him, if they bring in players who KD has openly said that he highly respects, Montrose Harrell, Patrick Beverly, and others on that team as well, Shea Gildas-Alexander, if those guys get a meeting with him and they're like, yo, we're going to sign this guy too, you get to live in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. take over the city from LeBron James and show that you're the best player in the league, that you're the better overall player, period, and you're going to win championships for a Clippers team that has never won anything in the past. You're going to be the hero of this franchise. I think it's something that Katie is at least going to think about. You sold me. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty, it's, it's an easy pitch. Right. It's, it's not. It's an easy pitch. Plus, they're like, hey, if you commit to us, who's the star you want? We can get him. Bingo. They have, the, get they have the assets. They have the cap space. Whereas the Knicks, they're run by a worse owner. A front office that has not made the just absolutely tremendous moves that Lawrence Frank and that Clippers front Michael office Winger, has made. Yeah, Everybody West, up and down yeah. the board. They have shown a commitment to spending, a commitment to make, taking necessary risks, a commitment to investing in this team with young players and Doc Rivers as well has actually, for a guy over the course of his entire <laughs> basketball coaching yeah. career, has not played young players has started two rookies. Right. And Landry Shamit and Shea Gildas-Alexander. I think this Clippers organization is clearly on the up and up. It goes without saying, with or without KD. And Isaac is over <laughs> here just grinning because I'm spitting <laughs> truth over here about the Clippers. Because Isaac, with this team, no matter what happens this summer, the Clippers are on the up and up. But I think that they have clearly positioned themselves, as Mark Stein said today, to at least be a threat to sign KD and that has to be for you just something that feels really really good to think about yeah it's great for what it's worth I don't believe that KD will actually come to the Clippers I do believe that they will have a meeting (laughs) and yeah I don't think anyone really in this room or on our staff even like believes that it's a real real possibility Hmm, it's a real real possibility it's a possibility I I totally think it's a real possibility I think he's gonna take a meeting at least okay maybe it's a real possibility it's not a real probability I wouldn't bet on it basically sure I would still bet on KD going to the Knicks At the same time, it does feel good to see that in the press, people are like, this star player, one of the greatest, what, 15, 20 best players of all time? One of is, the greatest. Con- yeah, one of the greatest. of the number. Looking to join the Los Angeles Clippers, the longtime laughingstock of the NBA. So it's great publicity for the Clippers. But I do want to point out that the Rich Kleiman quote, that he is 100% undecided on his future. Which is Everyone saying, is. Yeah, which is saying nothing. That says nothing. Mm-hmm. He could be 100% leaning towards the Knicks, but he's still 100% undecided, even if he's leaning. So I don't think that really means much. I also think there's a very, very real possibility that this is a leverage play where he can, because everyone has said that he's going to the Knicks, that he can kind of get the power back by putting it out there that he might consider the Clippers. All that to say, I think this is great. And I'm very hopeful for the Clippers' future, especially with the young assets, with the cap space, with Jerry West signing on for another year with the front office. Like Trent Redden and Michael Winger were both almost poached by other franchises, right. but they stayed. And they I think, to stay, yeah. yeah, and those are all very hopeful signs for the Clippers. Absolutely. I think the Clippers are an example of how quickly 
narratives can change, how perception can change, how the Clippers have quickly become a team that was once considered like the toilet team, bottom of the barrel in the NBA. Clippers are going to be the Clippers and all that. Now they're a model franchise moving forward. I mean, it really helps when you have the richest owner in the NBA who knows he doesn't know a lot. Richest owner in sports. Yeah. Who sits courtside and is fully invested in this team emotionally and financially. I think that says a lot. And that brings us to the New Orleans Pelicans, another team that has been really considered a pathetic franchise. They've been perceived that way for many years. David Griffin was just hired as president of basketball operations there. Trajan Langdon. Yeah, and he was hired as general manager under Griffin uh, just this week. For New Orleans, David Griffin, they just got a $3.8 million investment into a practice facility from their owner, Gail Benson. And Griffin publicly said how important that is for the team. But he also spoke about the idea that it's a, quote, false narrative that players wouldn't want to be drafted there to go play in New Orleans regarding Zion Williamson and John Morant, who they both met at the NBA Combine. Some of the talk following the lottery last week, Danny, was about how, oh, will Zion go back to school? Ooh, will Zion try to force his way somewhere else? And quickly that's changed. And suddenly the conversation about the Pelicans has turned into, well, you could be pairing Zion Williamson with Anthony Davis and try willing to build something potentially special here. And I think for New Orleans, um, they're in a position now where they don't have to trade AD. Of course not. Even if AD is telling you this summer, yeah, I'm, I'm going to bounce. I'm leaving. Griffin has all of the leverage. He can do whatever he wants. You can take this. it into the season mm-hmm. and see how this plays out with Zion, AD, Drew Holiday, and whatever other changes they make this offseason and see what happens. Because if you're AD and this team's winning games and they're like the four seed or five seed, something like they, that. And they totally can be. They absolutely could be. And if they're that successful during the season, suddenly he might be like, you know what? Like, I'm happy here. I see the potential for us, you know, making some changes. You know, when it first happened, I was like in the lottery room when that happened and like I wanted it to go nuts and then Alvin Gentry allowed everybody to go nuts <laughs> with his reaction. But like the more and more I've thought about it the last week, just the more and more incredible that it is. Like just think about everything that happened this season. I wrote about like 80 trade sweepstakes things like four times over yeah. the season. We talked about it all the time on podcasts that he was going to be traded to the Celtics, the Lakers, or the Clippers, or the Knicks, or whoever. And like, what's going to happen to the Pelicans? Are they going to move to Seattle? It's like, suddenly, they have a chance to draft one of the best yeah. prospects of the century. Yeah. Pairing with another guy who is one of the best players of the century, Anthony Davis. It's just, it's mind-blowing that this actually happened. One stone hit the water, the ripples we don't know where they're going to be carrying us. Mm-hmm. This is, this is, wow, that was really poetic, huh? It's beautiful. <laughs> but yeah, like I, up. <laughs> I totally understand that. And like, look, New Orleans is one of the best cities in America. It's pretty great. Top three for me. So Zion, give it a shot. Got to give it a shot, I think, with AD. We're going to have a special draft edition podcast with me, you, and Sharks in the flesh. Oh, yeah. All three of us. We're recording this week, and it'll air sometime next week on uh, the Ringer NBA show. We're not sure which day exactly, but look out for that. We're going to be doing a Q&A. Where Mailbag. We're, yes, you guys have submitted some questions on Twitter to us that we'll be answering this week, and we're excited about that. But just to kind of tease that for next week, I, I am curious, Danny, just on the topic of New Orleans, this fit with Zion and AD, and there'll be a lot of time to talk about this, but I just can't get it off my mind. I think it has the potential to be like a supercharged version of what we saw with DeMarcus Cousins and AD, where it was like not Mm. the best fit because of DeMarcus's defensive limitations, but we saw the potential of it on offense with two guys who can handle the ball, two guys that can space the floor. With AD screening for DeMarcus Cousins, we're going to see that immediately with Zion as a ball handler, 
or as a screener, as a guy who can go coast to coast. I think it's like the ideal fit for Anthony Davis. Like that was the appeal of LeBron and Zion is not LeBron James, but the appeal was like, you can interchange those guys and use them perfectly alongside each other. But with Zion, like it's a similar concept. And now it's like two potential, well, AD already is, but two potential elite defenders long arms. Alongside Drew Holiday. Alongside Drew Holiday. Like we're talking about a team that has at least the potential to be a lockdown defensive team with length and versatility and tough to handle on offense because, again, their length and versatility right. and skill versatility and ability to play in different areas of the floor. It's fascinating. I think one of the things that you really need to see out of Zion is, look, he was willing to take that three, but how much of yeah. that outside jumper actually translates to the NBA? It didn't translate all too well at Duke. It was maybe the one weakness he had, literally the Mm -hmm. one weakness he had. And so when you're looking at potential fit, there could be a situation in which it almost mirrors something closer to a Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid type situation where— Very possible. Yeah, where teams can kind of have a—at least a a framework of how to defend these two players when neither of them are necessarily knocked down three-point shooters. AD past four seasons, a 32.4% three-point shooter in Zion. Would not be surprising if he's in that same ballpark. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're right, that's going to be one of the challenges for the team moving forward. What level do each of them reach as a shooter, especially in catch-and-shoot situations, not not off the dribble? That'll be the challenge. That'll be the hurdle for that team. But overall... There's just so much to be excited about. Yeah, I think for the New Orleans Pelicans, they they went from full-on depression and unsure what the future would look like to excitement regardless of what happens with AD because of the potential and the promise of Zion Williams. I'm just, and I'm the just, potential of nine years of him. Yeah, nine, exactly. And, and somebody who, I think Jonathan Gavoni mentioned this recently somewhere, Zion is not necessarily like obsessed with the big market. He's a guy with like over 3 million Instagram followers, but like he does not abuse that in the he's sense a, that... He's a funny guy. He's yeah, a good personality. He's a good dude. And like he rarely ever like posts on Instagram. Like it doesn't matter if he does or doesn't, but like I'm saying he's not somebody who's obsessed with the spotlight. And I think, like, New Orleans, it could be, like, a really good place for him because it's not a big media market. It's a place where there will be less pressure on him, whereas if he goes to New York, he's immediately viewed as the savior. If he goes to the Lakers, he's immediately viewed as, like, the next LeBron, you know, like the the guy who can take over for LeBron in three years, whereas in New Orleans, it's, like, it's a team that needs a savior, Mm -hmm. like, alongside AD, but there's not going to be quite as much pressure. It's good for him. I do wonder, though, like, how that kind of dynamic works between him and AD in terms of fame, just because AD has very clearly stated he wants to kind of be in in a bigger market to kind of amplify his image. He had that really strange quote about wanting to be his own business or something (laughs) like that. Um, I don't buy it. And I I kind of don't either. I I I feel like winning is what matters to him, but it's interesting to imagine, and this could very well happen because Zion's such an engaging Mm -hmm. personality, but like, what if he kind of outshines him gets all of the endorsements that aren't castor motor oil or whatever it is, 80 shilling. <laughs> yeah. um, what happens then? What if he gets all of these, you know, does it become like a Damian Lillard, LaMarcus Aldridge, kind of like a weird feud between <laughs> yeah. the the establishment and the kind of new guard, you know? I hope it doesn't become that. If, it, mm-hmm. if I hope if they get the chance for right. it to become that, it doesn't become that. I would like to see David Griffin taken into the season. I I think he will, yeah. based off of what I've heard, and that's sort of what some executives across the league are expecting. But it's the type of thing where if he meets AD face to face this summer, and he's like, "Dude, I'm bouncing no matter what," and like then the Lakers offer you four unprotected future first round draft picks and 
all their young assets. It's like maybe you do roll with a young sure. core, but fact is, is that regardless of what happens for the Pelicans, like the Clippers, Clippers have turned into a upcoming franchise after many, many years, even with a great core with Blake Griffin and Chris Paul and Lob City. The ceiling still, is yeah, now yes, so much, higher. so much higher. And for New Orleans, suddenly a team that was hopeless has become a team with quite a lot of hope compared to most other teams in the league. It shows how quickly things can change. Absolutely. Danny, that's all we have time for today. Can't wait to talk soon, talk I'm, draft. I'm, I'm excited for that one next week. Thank you for listening to the Ringer NBA show. Please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Give us a thumbs up on YouTube. Share the podcast with your friends if you like it. And be sure to check out TheRinger.com. We have loads and loads of NBA playoff content, don't we, Danny? Of course. And now that Game of Thrones is over, you have no excuse. Read all of it. (laughs) You got to read all of it. We also have our NBA draft guide up, which will be updated at some point next week. And loads of other content, as always. Shout out to Isaac Lee, resident Clippers fan of The Ringer, for producing today's show. Thanks again for listening. Peace. Peace.